0: Continuing uh, in our series, A Change in Allegiance, this whole book has been about uh, what it looks like to be uh, a church, a community of believers living for God's kingdom in an environment or in a culture or society that maybe has different value systems than you do. How to navigate that. Uh, We've been making our way through this wonderful book together, studying what that looks like for us here in Santa Barbara, and in Goleta, uh, and in Montecito, and in Isla Vista, and abroad, and we are continuing now in a little section uh, between verses 13 and 17, so turn to those verses, and once you get there, I'll just begin to read, and we will study. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 through 17. And Peter, the apostle, says this. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for taking us through this journey in your word and, and also through life applying the word of God to our lives together, looking at what it, looks, what it means to be on mission in the city of Santa Barbara, and what it means to follow Christ even when it comes at a great cost. And now, as we look specifically at what, when that cost uh, has to do with other people around us, that maybe don't agree with our beliefs or our faith, I pray that you would likewise, as you have so graciously done in the past, help us navigate that as well. Lord, we want to come out of this building and this time in your word with a renewed sense of the power of the gospel to save those who believe. We want to come out of this building with a renewed sense of what, uh, uh, of what we are choosing to follow after the beauty and the glory of Christ and and the allure and the power of the gospel. We want to know, Lord, that the things that we are willing to lose, our comfort, our security, even our status, doesn't even compare to the wonder of following our Messiah. And Lord, it's easy sometimes in a city like Santa Barbara to forget that. And so, Lord, would you just begin to hoist before us, project before us that picture of that pearl of great price, that treasure in a field that you spoke about. That when that, that person finds it, they're willing to get rid of anything in order to keep it. We believe that you are that pearl of great price, you are that treasure in the field. And I pray that you would become today more visible to us in our faith. More wonderful, more beautiful, more alluring, and more attractive than ever before. We pray that you would do that by your word right now, in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Peter, uh, for those of you that are maybe just stepping in to visit, or you've only been here maybe a a couple weeks, a little bit of a recap. Peter Peter is writing to a group of Christians who are out of place. Literally, they're. refugees and exiles, out of place and even considered to be a threat to their society. Uh, they're not a blessing to society, at least uh, not, not from society's perspective. They are a blessing. They are uh, ministers of the gospel of Jesus. But from society's perspective, in the first century, uh, they're weird, they're strange, they're outcasts, and they're even a, a bit of a threat. In the same way, Christianity today has been, you could say it this way, falling out of vogue in the last few decades in culture and in society. And while there were points in our history uh, decades where Christianity used to occupy a very influential role in Western society and politics and in culture, right now it seems to be in this low point of popularity and acceptance and influence. We have some similarities between uh, our situation and the one which Peter is speaking into with those uh, exile Christians in, in Asia Minor. Uh, the Barna Group uh, recently interviewed thousands of U.S. adults and more than 1,000 faith leaders. The goal of this interview process was to get an accurate lay of the cultural landscape in which we, the church, find ourselves particularly of the places where communities of faith feel friction with their surrounding culture and vice versa, right? The whole theme of First Peter. How do you balance this, this sense that we belong to the kingdom of God, but we're right here in just this almost hostile environment? Well, they did a, an interview of all of these U.S. adults, thousands of interviews uh, to get this sense of what the feeling was between culture and the church. The two things that came out of that research were this, people outside of the church consider the church to be two things one irrelevant and second extreme irrelevant and extreme now i don't view the church that way and i don't think many of you do either but we're not the you know we're not the point of this interview process it's people outside of the church and their perception of us christianity is considered by many people in our country to be irrelevant meaning you know it 's great uh, it 's great for you. It has some personal benefits for you personally, but it 's largely irrelevant to the public sphere uh, and to my life as your neighbor that 's perhaps what some people might express to you, not only irrelevant to people outside of the church but also to American Christians are feeling this sense of irrelevance. Three in five American Christians are mostly inactive in their faith they are just too busy. Uh, to be active in their faith, or they find God elsewhere in a bunch of other things. Christianity is also considered to be extremist. There's a new one by many Americans. Uh, specifically, 45% of atheists, agnostics, and religiously unaffiliated in America agree with the statement Christianity is extreme or extremist. That's very, uh, very interesting. We know. Uh, what this term implies. Generally speaking, we use the term extremist uh, to speak of whenever a, a reli- uh, someone uses religion to justify violence against another person. We would call that extremist, right? Uh, we would also call it extremist. People call, uh, call actions that are extremist whenever it's someone refusing to serve someone else because of that customer's lifestyle. Or if that lifestyle conflicts with uh, your beliefs, uh, people might call that extremist. We're used to that sort of language, but it's, it's starting to broaden its horizons. Look at this research with the Barna Group. Uh, it's not only those things, but also basic practices in Christianity that are now considered to be extreme. For example, 60% of U.S. adults consider any attempts to convert others to their faith as being extreme. So evangelism. Right? A very basic practice of Christianity. We love Jesus, we want to tell other people about Jesus. This is beginning to be, uh, this is considered to be extreme by a huge population of people in our country. 42% of U.S. adults consider quitting a good paying job to pursue missions work in another country. Extreme. So basically, a bunch of people at Real Life at UCSB and you, my dear sister, Cassidy, Uh, this is... uh, Considered to be really radical. Like, why would you do that? That is just, uh, that's insane. We don't believe that, but people outside of the church and actually a growing number of people in the church are considering that to be extreme. 24% of U.S. adults consider waiting until marriage in order to have sex to be extreme uh, and radical. Uh, These are lower numbers, but to give you a sense of of, uh, the perception and belief systems in our world today, Specifically in our nation, 18% of U.S. adults believe that regularly donating money to a religious community or tithing uh, is radical and extreme. Uh, Also on this list are reading the Bible silently in public, attending church on a weekly basis, and volunteering to help people in need. These are basic practices of the Christian faith that are not just considered to be irrelevant, but now extreme, meaning they are floating into my sphere, Uh, of life and i consider them to be some sort of a threat to the way that i live now christianity is not irrelevant if we believe that jesus is real and exists and the things that he said are valid and that he rose from the dead and that the gospel of jesus is the power of god for salvation to those who believe it it is far from irrelevant right Nor would we consider it to be extremist in this understanding of extreme, or maybe you do consider it to be extreme. But these are these are largely perceptions of our culture towards us. That's a big deal. It might not be a a big deal for some of you. Some of you might be in this room and you're like, "So what? I don't care what the world thinks. Ah, the gospel is an offense and it's a stumbling block, and I am a stumbling block, and I'm good at it. It's like my spiritual gift." You know, is offending people. You know, I don't care what people think. That might be you, and if that's you, stay for the remainder of the sermon. <laughs> for the rest of us, this is kind of discouraging, maybe. Because you actually love Jesus. You think that he has something great to offer the world and you love your neighbor and you want them to know what you have come to find, that Jesus transforms lives and cities and the world for his good name. And so you're asking how you know if, how, how in a world where this is true, where people's perception of me is that I'm irrelevant, I don't matter, and I'm actually a threat to their life, how then can I begin to reach out to those very people? We live in a time and a place in similar ways to Peter's audience, where Christianity seems to be losing its cultural luster. Now, in Peter's day, it wasn't losing its cultural luster. It was this new movement. There was no luster. It was weird and strange and threatening. We're coming out of a period of time, a long period, where it used to be culturally acceptable and culturally mandated, if you would, and it's It has for the you know maybe last fifty years, beginning to lose that luster and popularity. What do we do? How do we effectively reach others in a cultural tide like that? And this letter, and I'm going to get to the meat of it towards the end. But before I do, I want to show you how this uh, Peter's exhortation applies to our situation. This letter is basically telling us that this cultural tide is not an opportunity to be sad or discouraged, but it's actually an opportunity to show more of the true beauty of Christianity to people who need it the most. But before we can see how Peter shows that true beauty, we need to know where things went wrong with us. And I don't mean you specifically, but just our culture and the cultural landscape. It's interesting that if you look through church history for thousands of years, you see this ebb and flow. There are times where the church are, is in the center of cultural power. They are the leaders of everything. Every, uh, uh, they are in the middle of political power, they are in the middle of cultural power. It is a popular thing to do, it is not only culturally acceptable, but it's actually culturally expected. You also see times in Christian history where none of that is the case. Christianity is weird, strange, and some people consider it threatening. And there is no incentive to follow Jesus other than by Christ's merit alone. You see these two different ebbs and flows. And if you were to study Christian history, which you don't have to do right now, I'll just tell you a few things, you'll see that it seems the church has always been the most effective seems to be very effective, if not the most effective, during those periods of history where the church is on the margins of society, not right in the middle of power and control. It's when we are working from the margins, working inward, quietly doing things that the church is supposed to do, preaching the gospel and loving those who are marginalized, uh, and pushed out and outcast, and combining those two different things and knowing how to suffer. Consequently, or by contrast, it also seems that in periods of time where the church was right in the middle of power and control, or it was loud and in charge, that there uh, there are areas where expressions of Christianity would bubble up that were less effective, perhaps watered down, less powerful, You can trace this all the way to the beginning of the Christian church. When Christ uh, was resurrected and he ascended and he sent his Holy Spirit and this band of apostles went out and started telling people about him. And the church began to grow and it began to grow. And people did, uh, considered it to be strange, this strange sect of Judaism, and um, uh, uh, eventually considered it to be a threat. And when it was considered to be a threat, Rome reared its ugly head, as it often did when threats uh, were discerned, and waves of persecution began to batter at the door of this fledgling uh, community of, of believers. And emperors and governors like Vespasian and Titus and Hadrian and many others would just begin to unleash violence against the church in these waves and yet it did not destroy the Christian church. In fact, against all odds, it seemed that the church just began to erupt with more vitality than ever before, with more population than ever before, with more power and with more to give than ever before. Thousands of years later, we would see the same type of thing in other persecuted countries, maybe not here, but in places like China, where uh, the co- a, a communist regime, a regime would want to impress upon uh, the nation that, uh, the cultural revolution, squashing any forms of religion, especially Christianity. And yet, over time, what happened? Christianity was not stifled it grew more vital uh, in more vitality it grew more in power it grew uh, in deeper more nuanced expressions by contrast after those waves of persecution and after the growth of the church in those early centuries uh, we uh, excuse me we see that the christian population actually explodes between 8100 and from 25,000 Christians to 20 million Christians. It just, just explodes all over the known world at that time. But then, then something else changes. An emperor by the name of Constantine gets converted, makes Christianity the main religion of the empire, and all of a sudden persecution stops, suffering stops. The cost of following Jesus is rendered almost... Uh, uh, null and void, and the Christian faith is thrust to the center of power and influence. All of a sudden, it becomes an honor and a distinction to become a Christian. It become uh, the best positions in the state and in the community are given to Christians. Christians become leaders everywhere, and there's a lot of good that comes out of that. But there's also a lot of bad things that come out of that too. It was only natural that pagans started to turn to Christianity, but not because they love Jesus but because uh, they were seeking to gain position and promotion. And Christianity was the way to do it. It was the popular thing at that time. The reproach of the cross turned into, uh, was turned into royal fame and glory. And with that, yes, there were Christians who were uh, seeking to honor Christ and follow him, but there were also thousands of Christians that uh, uh, chose Christianity, not because they found Christ alluring, but because of the societal and cultural benefit that it offered them. Jesus would speak about this in Matthew chapter 13, verse 20 through 21. He would, say, he would describe that as a particular type of soil. He would call it the rocky ground. He said, what was sown in rocky ground, that's basically the person who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, right? Right? Yet it has no root in himself, but it endures for a little while. But when tribulation or persecution arise on account of the word, immediately that person falls away. There are these times in history where Christianity is exciting, or there's a cultural benefit, or everybody is doing it, or if I do that, you know, I will uh, get married into that family, or I will get this job, or people will accept me. And yet, when there comes this cost to following Jesus, that type of person falls away because they didn't love Jesus to begin with. They love the idea of Jesus. What do we do when we live in a time where that cultural luster is beginning to wane? It seems like that is one of the most exciting times in history to live. <laughs> Whenever the incentive for being a Christian is the benefits in culture and society that it can get you, you're gonna start to see its influence in that very culture and society start to wane. With Christianity's drop in popularity now, there actually is this opportunity for many Christians to begin to choose Jesus on his merits alone and not what culture and society are able to give you by following him. Now there will be this opportunity to purify what the church actually looks like. No longer is it a mix of people, some who love Jesus, but some who are just doing it because it's traditional, or my, you know, my parents did it, or you know, people will accept me more because of where I live and what I do. Now you will be faced with only one option, lose everything and follow Christ because you love him that much. There will be no other cultural or societal pull. There won't be any other incentive except that you see Jesus as worthy of counting the cost for. Could you imagine if the church had to, had to face that? If the only reason people chose Christianity was because Jesus was so much better than their comfort and security uh, and, and, and finances and, and, and status in the world? where there was no other pull or incentive, but it had to be Jesus, could you imagine a church that looked like that? They would be willing to suffer the cost. They would be willing to undergo persecution and ridicule. They would be willing to deny themselves constantly because Jesus is better. Throughout history, whenever there has been that cost associated with following Jesus, those who decide to do so tend to be the most serious about Christianity. It tends to draw a line in the sand. And it's with these types of believers that you see the most potent expression of Christianity. That's the type that is no longer irrelevant or even extreme, but beautiful. And it's many of these that I have seen and encountered in this church, in many of you, throughout Santa Barbara and many other churches, and it's to these that Peter is speaking when he says what he says next. Now, who is there, verse 13, to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? He's not saying, hey, if you follow Christ, nothing bad will ever happen to you. This is basically a rhetorical question. It's aimed to persuade people who are being persecuted for following Jesus. He's aiming to persuade them that their enemies can't ultimately harm them. They can maybe harm you. They can definitely harm the people Peter is speaking to physically. They can kill those people and throw them in jail. In many places in the world, that is still true. Here in our culture and in our society, people can still harm you by ridiculing you by hurting your, uh, your progression perhaps in your career, by ostracizing you and marginalizing you, those things can happen. Following Jesus doesn't mean those things aren't gonna happen. Peter is saying they cannot ultimately harm you. In other words, Romans chapter eight, I think verse 31, if God is for you, who can be against you? Well, there's a lot of people that could be against you, but it's a rhetorical question. If God is for you, who cares? And for this, it's the same thing. Yeah, you might suffer for following Jesus, but who cares? People might ridicule you. You might have a low. People might think you're silly, irrelevant, and extreme, but who cares? Let the power of the gospel have its way. There is a reason to be happy about some of the cultural ebbs and flows that we are experiencing now. Because now Christianity has an opportunity to move towards the margins where it's always seemed to be the most effective. Christian expression can become more purified as those who choose to follow Jesus have to be serious and committed if they're going to do it. They have to understand this real call to lose their life for Christ's sake as he calls them to. They have to be desperate for the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not always gonna be easy. And they have to be deeply aware of God's blessing in the midst of trial. Peter would go on to say in verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. The people in Asia Minor understood the beauty of that statement. I don't know if we always do. Because we associate blessing often with not suffering. So when we suffer, we think God is not blessing us. Blessed and blessing is such a weird and sometimes unhelpful term for us sometimes, you know? We use it in a cliched manner to speak of being happy. You know, we we might use it in a sentence like when someone sneezes, you know, God bless you. Or we might pray for God to bless somebody. English translations vary in trying to express what blessing means. Some of them say blessed, some of them say fortunate, others say happy. We think of blessing as being happy. But happiness doesn't work very well to express the depth of what this word blessed means. When we think of happy, we think uh, our modern connotation of happy is generally like a psychological happiness. We feel really good. But that's not this robust view that Peter had in mind. Peter probably got his version of blessing from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Among many others, where blessing had to do with the coming kingdom of God, where it had to do with God's kingdom in the future breaking forth into the present. And he would say things like, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake, for the kingdom of God is theirs. There are two, Greek, uh, two words in the New Testament, Greek words for that term blessed. One is eulogy, uh, eulogio, that's where we get the word eulogy, and it just means a prayer request. Like God, bless him. That's kind of maybe what a lot of us have in mind when we, we think of blessing. The other speaks of an existing state. To be blessed means you are in an existing state of being. This is what Jesus always used in the Sermon on the Mount and it's what Peter is using right here when he says, if you should suffer for following Jesus, you will be blessed. You will experience this state of life. Blessed means, if it has to do with the kingdom, and it does, and it has to do with an existing state, we could say that blessing means this. It means that somehow the realities of the kingdom of heaven out there have moved into the present in a palpable way. So when I say that I am blessed, I don't mean I just got a job promotion, you know? It doesn't mean I am very happy right now. It means that somehow the kingdom of God, which is unseen, has had an effect on me in this moment. That means you can be blessed in the middle of suffering. You can suffer loss and say, I am so blessed right now. An illustration of what I mean by this uh, is you know, whenever I, I tell my, my three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Abby, that we're going somewhere, like to the zoo or to the park or to the beach or to see some, some friend's dog, that's a big one, I'll often pop some of these things like when she's sad, so drops popsicle, trips on her bike, uh, falls down, doesn't get something that she wants, is crying, tantrum, bummed, and I'll say, hey, guess what? going to the zoo tomorrow and i will watch as her countenance changes why (laughs) because zoo (laughs) why not (laughs) but we're not actually at the zoo yet that is still future why is her countenance changed? because some reality in the future has made its way into the present for my daughter she is looking forward to something that is about to happen, and it is changing her understanding and her perception of what she's going on, uh, what's going on in the present. Paul says in Romans chapter eight verse eighteen, "I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us." Paul is saying, "Hey, we're going to go through suffering in this present moment, but the zoo's coming, right?" The glory of a future state with Christ is coming, and it's not just out there, but it is slowly changing. It's almost like it's working backwards, and it's changing us into the image of God. And all of a sudden, you're blessed. Your countenance changes. It doesn't take away, it doesn't mean that there's not going to be hardship in life or that you're not going to go through difficult things. It means that God's sustaining presence is with you in that moment and you have a future hope to look for and that those hardships are not wasted and God is going to change and redeem and transform and renew everything that has been broken along the way. That is tremendous comfort to people who are going through difficulty. It was a tremendous comfort to these exiles in Asia Minor whose faith that they left everything for was largely considered to be silly and, and threatening. Perhaps it can be a comfort for Christians today who are wondering, is this, is this worth tossing away so much in order to follow a guy that I cannot see? It's coming. When Christians are able to suffer well, There seems to follow with that this new vitality to their faith that is not just relevant but extremely desirable. We live in a time and in a place where Christianity has seemed to uh, have has lost its luster. It seems that if we look at Scripture and Christian history, it's because that form of Christianity. (laughs) is not always the Christ Christ form of Christianity. It's mixed with all sorts of different things. Cultural acceptance, popularity. But if we can just begin to learn what it means to suffer well, that vitality will come back to uh, to those expressions of faith. And people in our neighborhoods and in our cities will look at our faith and they will once again say, I want that you have a different quality of life. You have a different way of living your life. Mine is broken and it is wanting in these areas, but you have a different way of living and I want that. If we could learn how to suffer well. What does it mean to suffer well? This is the rest of what Peter explains. He gives us three things. These will be fairly quick, but he says, don't be afraid, number one. When, when things around you start to change, when the times aren't like they used to be, I'm actually excited about that a little bit. I'm excited for a little challenge. I'm excited for our, our faith to come with a cost. I'm excited for the purging effect of that in the, in the American church. But Peter would remind us, and he would say, Don't be afraid. Specifically, he would say, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Don't be afraid of the cultural ebbs and flows. Don't be afraid of the ridicule that may come for being a radical, extreme Christian that does weird things like go to church on Sunday or read their Bible or take Jesus seriously. Don't be afraid. Don't be moved by that. Nor be afraid of the charlatans who parade a cheap form of Christian religion on TV and in politics and in media. Don't worry about them. You be a faithful Christian in your sphere of influence you show what it's really supposed to look like don't be afraid of all of this stuff that's happening around us because God's kingdom is truly unshakable it is unstoppable nothing can stop it do you hear that Hebrews chapter 12 or 13 or 14 or whatever it was It is unstoppable, an unshakable kingdom that we are inheriting. It is going to move forward no matter what Satan or anybody in the world desires. His kingdom is expanding. We have the opportunity to participate in that expanding swell of God's kingdom. Don't be afraid. That is the least thing that you should be. You should be excited that we get to live in this age in history where the kingdom of God matters such as this. Second, obey Christ more faithfully. Take seriously everything that he says. Peter says this in in a couple of next lines. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Kind of a clumsy sentence, but this is essentially what he's saying. He's he's saying, uh, to honor Christ as Lord in your hearts means to have an inward attitude of obedience to him that dictates our behavior in the world. That means no more private religion. This is what people view religion and spirituality today as a private affair. I'm fine with you believing whatever you want to believe, but just keep it to yourself. Stop keeping it to yourself. Stop keeping it to yourself. It is not a private affair. The world needs what you have. Honoring Christ uh, as the Lord and as holy in your heart means that what you believe in your heart is now making its way into your body, into your mind, into your soul, into your speech, into your relationships, into the public sphere. It means you're taking Christ seriously, not only privately, but also publicly. The command here isn't, you know, Peter isn't being weird and saying like, okay, uh, you know, if Christians can just suffer well, so everybody go out and suffer, That would be so weird, you know? He's not saying, go out and suffer, for suffering is inevitable. We're gonna encounter suffering. What he's telling us to do in this line is to suffer well. Suffer the way that a Christian suffers. The way that Jesus suffered. Now, for us, this is maybe a little tricky because we aren't being hauled off to prison or killed like so many people around the world. But we do have daily opportunities to serve or to deny the flesh, which is a form of suffering. So even if we're not being hauled off to prison or persecuted in that sense, we can still encounter suffering in small ways that will form us through the years by choosing to deny yourself in little ways every day for the rest of your life. How are you suffering? You're, as Paul would say, suffering in the flesh. You're constantly choosing Jesus over your flesh, over your sinful nature. If we can't do that, how can we face prison should that ever come? If we love our creature comforts and our money and our friendships and uh, uh, social, uh, social benefits and if we love our positions of power and if we love our privilege more than what Christ is calling us to, how can we do it when we actually are faced with prison? should that ever occur. Be faithful with the small things. Honor Christ as Lord in your heart. Cling to Christ when it's unpopular now, even when you feel like you're losing, even when it feels like it's difficult. Thirdly, Peter assumes that when you do that, because that is silly, the people are going to look at you and wonder why you're so silly. Even more so, they're going to look at your life and they're going to say, not only are they doing something that is so weird, like not doing all of the things that I'm doing, they're doing, they have a completely different life and yet their quality of life is significantly better than mine. They're going through difficult situations and hardship but they seem to be happier than I am. Their marriage, their marriages are, are healthier than mine. Their kids are, are, are well-behaved and wonderful, and even when they're not, the parents don't lose it. Like They seem to keep their cool. There's something different about them. Peter's assuming that they're going to ask you questions. And his third thing, how to suffer well? Make sure you explain your hope. Always being prepared, he says, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Now that word defense... Really just means to give an answer, a reasoned explanation. It does not mean, uh, you know, to play the defender and attack people and argue with them incessantly. It just means to explain why you do the things that you do. And to explain your hope the hope of this resurrected Jesus who completely transformed your life, to give your testimony to explain why your life looks different, why you've chosen this course. Now, there are a few ways that this might not work. One, people might not be asking you. Uh, People might not be asking you to give an answer for the hope that is in you. And I think it's interesting that Peter tells us to give an answer to people that ask us. He doesn't necessarily tell us to go out and to tell people why our lives are so different. Now, if people are not asking you for the hope that is in you, could be for a variety of reasons, but one of those reasons, and this should at least cause us to look inwardly and ask ourselves this question. If no one's asking you for a reason for your hope, maybe they don't see it. We should be asking ourselves this question right now. In a, in a time and in a place where people are longing for hope and they're looking for it in thousands of ways. Maybe you're looking in the same places that they're looking. Maybe when they look at your life, they don't see a different quality of life. They don't see a different trajectory in life. Maybe they see the same thing that they're doing. Why would they ask you for hope? your life might look just like their life. Is your hope locked up in your creature comforts and relationships and status and comfort and security? Is your life really locked up and situated on the same things that other people in the world who don't know Christ are as well? Does your life look the same as non-believers in Santa Barbara? If that's the case, then of course they're not going to ask you. And if you tell them where your hope is, they're going to laugh. They might say, well, uh, you say that now, but I've seen the way that you live. (laughs) I think it's interesting that Peter says, hey, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. If people aren't asking, there's a good opportunity, good space for us to be like, Lord, what do I need to change? Am I living in such a way that people can see that I have a different hope? Second, it might be that when they do ask you, you don't explain it in a way that they understand. Peter says to give a defense. In other words, a reason statement for explaining to people why you've chosen Jesus. It might be uh, you know, that people ask you for a hope, like why are you doing that? Why? Like When hardship has come your way, Or when you didn't get that job promotion, you didn't seem very rattled by it. That's really crazy, I would have been like on the door of my employer just battling it down. Why are you so, why why didn't you do that? And your response is to say, uh, I consider the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I've been sanctified and justified and washed in the blood. They might not really understand what that means. So there is this onus on us, this obligation to explain in language that they understand why. Thirdly, you might be combative or condescending. You might be the type of person that just wants to wrestle people into a submission. And yet, Peter would go on to say to do all of this with gentleness and respect. Winsome, gentle, respectful, but with a hope that transcends any other hope that we're able to explain when people ask us. He goes on to say, Have a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, uh, in Christ may be put to shame. In other words, we are to simultaneously have this lifestyle that is above reproach. Don't be a hypocrite. <laughs> Don't speak one way and live a completely different way. This has been a consistent pattern through Peter. Over and over, he keeps saying, live in such a way that people's negative opinions of your life are changed by the way you live your life. We live in a culture and in a society where people have negative opinions about Christianity and our faith. Peter isn't saying, go out and argue them into submission. He's saying, live differently. And he has been saying that over and over 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 2. Wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they're not believers, they may be won without a word by your conduct when they see you respectful and pure conduct. 1 Peter 3, 9. Don't repay evil for evil or ridicule or, excuse me, insulting, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. Perhaps Peter so immersed in this way of thought got this originally from his master and Messiah, Jesus, who said on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew five sixteen, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are called as an alternative community, remember last week, to a different way of life. We are called to a different way of life. And we are supposed to live a life that, uh, that has counted the cost to such a degree that when people see it, there will come a time where they ask for our reasons for living in such an outlandish fashion. And when they do, we're able to tell them, Jesus is worth it. A church that knows how to navigate suffering this way will not only be sustained through suffering, but a group of people like this will be unstoppable. Think of a group of people that is willing to lose anything in order to take Jesus' words seriously. Unstoppable. Who's going to stop them? People going to make fun of them. That's going to stop them? No. People are going to throw them in prison. That's going to stop them? No. People are going to be uh, uh, offended by the things that they say and do. That's going to stop them? No. A church that knows how to navigate suffering the way that Peter outlined will not only find themselves sustained but they will find themselves unstoppable by showing the true beauty of Christianity which is not the cultural benefits that sometimes come along with it, not society's opinion, not doing what mom and dad think, not being a part even of a Christian community but the true beauty of Christianity is Christ himself. That's what Santa Barbara needs to see. That's what we have. And that's what suffering forces us to face on a regular basis. Heavenly Father, as we uh, worship today and sing, I just want to ask right now that you would elevate our, our spiritual eyes not onto the sufferings of this present life, but unto the beauty and to the glory of your dear son. I pray that as we sing, there would be this renewed sense of that call to follow Jesus. That even as in the Gospels, Lord, you, as you were walking on the shores of Galilee and you, you looked at those Galilean fishermen who were tending their nets and they were busy just going about their business, and you, you called them, Lord, he said, hey, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. I pray that throughout this building right now, you would begin to issue that same call. People who are lost and confused, maybe people who are discouraged, maybe people who are suffering right now because they have been taking you seriously. Also people who maybe haven't been taking you seriously, they have not been obeying your word. They have not been walking in holiness. They they don't care about the gospel. It's just been in name only. I pray that you would call them out as well. And I pray all throughout this building, Lord, by the spirit of the living God, Jesus would be here. Coming up to people who are just tending their nets. Put your hand on their shoulder and issue that call that has transformed and changed thousands of people for so many years. Follow me. And may we look up today, Lord, and see in you everything that we have ever needed, everything that we have ever wanted, everything that we were created for. And may we rise up and follow you wherever you call us to go. We pray this in Jesus' name.